just appreciate your willingness to do that. It's really great. So, um, my name is Mark. Um, uh, like many of you, I, I don't come from a church background. I, I first went to church when I was about 19 or 20, and I'd been a Christian for about two or three weeks. And um, one of my friends invited me to a Christian concert. Now, a Christian concert is just basically like a normal concert, except that they get a Christian band who's never really had a top 40 hit and they sing about Jesus, but we give them money because they can't make it in the real world. Whatever. Anyway, they're actually a really good band. They toured from all over the world. They're not too bad. Anyway, so someone says, do you want to come to this Christian concert? I'm like, sure. This is what Christians do. I'll go to the Christian concert, pay my 30 bucks or whatever it was back then to, to go for the concert. We get there. It's actually the massive church on the other side of Brisbane. And they've obviously said to one of the guys who's a bit of a bigger guy in the church, mate, you look like you could do security. We'll give you a security shirt, chuck on the shirt, and you can do security at the concert. That was great. Anyway, everyone's waiting outside. It's the middle of the day. It's super hot. And for you know how when the crowds start to build up, everyone starts to push and shove a little bit, and they, there's this big, massive gate, and people start pushing on the gate, you know, and I'm like, the security guard's getting a bit stressed, thinking there's a riot about to break out at the Christian concert. So he's just like, I don't know what to do. So he climbs up on the gate, and he says, right, I want everyone to listen up, because everyone's pushing and shoving, whatever. He goes, okay, I need you to stop pushing and shoving. I want you to act as if Jesus was standing right here. Now, one person, he's like, if Jesus was standing here, he'd perform a miracle and open the stupid gate, right? So this was his response. Anyway, we eventually got in, and the band was actually really good. They're actually very, very good. They have actually had some top 40 hits in America. So they're like a genuinely good band. Things are going really well. And then they had an intermission. Now, I've never been to a concert where they have an intermission. I remember going to U2 and just being there forever, thinking, I'd like a bathroom break, but there's no chance of that happening. But they decided to have an intermission. I'm like, this is awesome. You get some food, go to the bathroom. But that's not what happened. I didn't know this, right? But someone got up, a preacher got up, and he decided not to speak about Jesus, but to say, hey, listen, it's great that you've come here today, but we need to take up an offering. And I'm like, haven't we paid for this concert? Like, I don't know what your budgeting's doing behind the scenes, but clearly you're not very good at budgeting. So he goes on, and you know the kind of things that you see on TV where people, you know, some of those really weird, I shouldn't say weird, I've said the wrong thing. Anyway, you know the guilt trips that people can do for money. This guy gets up and does a guilt trip for money, basically saying you should give money because we've got to cover costs, all this kind of stuff. I think this is a, this is a disaster, right? And clearly you have no financial skills. So he gets up, does this big guilt trip for money, and then right at the end he says, now, I don't want anyone to give out a guilt, Right? Don't give out a guilt. I mean, all we've got for the last 10 minutes is a guilt trip, right? Fantastic experience. He says, I don't want anyone to give out a guilt. The Bible says that we don't give under compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. So I'm like, oh, good, okay, maybe I've misunderstood. But then he says this, I must warn you, faith without works is dead. <laughs> and I'm like, I've been a Christian for like two weeks. I've just got invited to this thing. It was a super freaky experience. But if you are kind of new to church, or even if you are not new to church and you've had a background in church, I'm guessing at some stage along your journey, unfortunately, someone has guilt-tripped you into something religious. They've guilt-tripped you into coming to church. They've guilt-tripped you into giving money. They've guilt-tripped you into serving at the, at the local you know, community thing, whatever it is. But there is a lot of guilt that can fly around in religious organisations. And we are kicking off a three-week series on prayer, and when it comes to prayer, the same thing can happen. Now, if you've been in church for a little bit, this is what can typically happen. People will say things like this. How's your walk with Jesus going? 
I got a text message in a group message actually this week. How's your walk with Jesus going? Not just to me, but to a whole heap of us in leadership at this thing. And already, without even doing a single thing, you just feel bad, don't you? Because of course, it's always going terrible, right? I'm never the person that God wants me to be. I'm always struggling. Or they say things like this, you need to be committed and you need to be faithful in your spending time with God. They'll use language like this, you need to have a quiet time. Has anyone heard the language quiet time before? I don't, know why they, I don't know why they use the word quiet. I'm an extrovert, so if you want me to pray, don't use the word quiet, right? But they use the word quiet time. They talk about prayer as a spiritual discipline. And to me, it sounds a lot like a chore. The way they describe it, it sounds a lot like a chore. And what we're going to find today is this. The way churches have motivated people to pray for years and years and years has often been through telling people they've got to be more committed, more faithful, spend more time having a quiet time, have a spiritual discipline, and it's very much been driven by guilt. The problem is it doesn't work. J.D. Greer said this, if you really want to embarrass the average Christian, just ask them to tell you about his or her private life. That is the one thing most Christians are woefully deficient in. D.A. Carson said this, Most pastors testify to the decline in personal, family and corporate prayer across the nation. Two years ago at a major North American seminary, 50 students who were offering themselves for overseas ministry during the summer holidays were carefully interviewed so their suitability, suitability could be assessed. Only three of these 50, that's 6%, could testify to regular, there's that word, quiet times, times of reading the scriptures, of devoting themselves to prayer. It would be painful and embarrassing to uncover the prayer life of many thousands of evangelical pastors. This is what I think. At best, driving people through commitment, driving people through discipline, driving people through guilt will give you external short-term results. The research that comes back over and over again, if you want to get someone to change their behaviour, not from the inside, but just on the outside, and you want it to last for a few days, maybe a week, maybe even up to a month, you guilt trip them and you drive them through commitment and you drive them through discipline. But it will not bring about deep internal change deep within our heart and it certainly will not bring about long-term results. The problem is we have for far too long as a church, I'm talking corporately now, driven people to pray through guilt and discipline. But I think there is a better way. And I think the Bible teaches there is a better way. So today what we're going to do is address the question or address the issue, I feel guilty because I don't pray. Who here, would, if you, this is a bit scary, but who here has at one stage in their life felt this? I feel guilty because I don't pray. Most of us. So what hope is there for those of us who feel like this? Uh, in order to address this, I want to go off topic for a bit. I want to look at a parable that Jesus told about the Christian life. And it's really about the Christian life in general. And then we're going to kind of swing it back to prayer. So uh, if you have a Bible there, we're going to look at Luke chapter 18. Um, this is um, well worth having a look at. So I'm just going to put this down a bit. Um, in Luke 18 verse 9, Jesus says this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down upon everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now here we have Jesus painting the picture of two types of people. 
On one hand, we have a Pharisee. That is a religious leader. It is someone who is morally superior to everyone else, and they are spiritually dedicated, spiritually committed, spiritually disciplined. They have what it takes to achieve spiritual success. But on the other hand, we have a tax collector, a sinner, a guy who rips off everyone in his own people, morally inferior, morally bankrupt, and spiritually failing, does not have what it takes, does not have the commitment, the discipline to achieve spiritually. And Jesus is painting the picture between two types of people. He goes on, verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. So the, the, the Pharisee considers himself morally superior. You may know people like this. You may very well, I may very well, have, have times like this. It's so easy, isn't it, to rage about something on Facebook or look at something and go, I can't believe anyone would do that. You might even say, you know, oh, that person calls themselves a Christian. How could they call themselves a Christian and do something like this? This is the Pharisee. We look at our own life, we compare it to others, and we deem ourselves to be morally superior. But it's not just that. He says, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. So here we find he's not just morally superior, but he is spiritually committed. And he's not just committed to obey the Jewish law, he is committed to go above and beyond the Jewish law. So for instance, it was a requirement of a Jew to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. What does he say? I fast twice a week. Once a year? That's what, the, that's what these guys do. They, they do the bare minimum. They obey the law. But me, I'm spiritually committed. I'm going above and beyond. Once a year is not enough. I'm going to do once. I'm going to do twice a week. I'm going to go twice a week because that's what it would take. Added to that, he also gave tithes. A tithe just means tenth. But a tenth of all his income and not just the required parts specified by the Jewish law. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that this Pharisee was extremely committed. He was extremely faithful. He was spiritually devoted. Now, for many of us, we have been told this is the key to prayer. How do you spend more time with God? How do you develop a deeper prayer life? Become like the Pharisee. Now, we don't use the word Pharisee because we're not allowed to say that. Jesus always painted the Pharisees, the bad guys. But in a sense, we're saying, hang on, don't use the word Pharisee because we can't use the word Pharisee. We know Jesus didn't like the Pharisees. But become like the Pharisee. Be committed to go above and beyond. And don't just pray 10 minutes a day. Pray 30 minutes a day. Don't just pray 30 minutes a day. Pray for an hour a day. You know, you hear statements like, I have so much to do today, I can't just pray for an hour today, I've got to pray for two hours today. And you hear all these dramatic statements as if they're going to drive us to be more faithful and committed in prayer. And all of that's fine, and it sounds good, it just doesn't work. So Jesus goes on. But the tax collector stood at a distance. I know people who the idea of even walking through a church, let alone a temple back in, in, in the day, is terrifying. I remember when I first went to a church, it is terrifying. And I was a good moral person growing up. I never got attention, right? I got responsibility award in grade seven. I was the best behaved student in the school. But I was terrified about walking into a church. 
The tax collector is sitting there going, I'm not even sure if I'm allowed in here. He's standing at a distance. I had a friend of mine once who I hadn't seen at church in years. We were running a church in Redcliffe and he came up to me before. I, I saw him. I said, hey, man, how are you going? And he, um, I just started talking to him. There was a few people around and then he said, hey, can I just talk to you before we go in? I said, yeah, mate. I said, look, I've got to speak. I've got a few things, but I've got like a minute. He pulls me aside and he says, hey, um, hey um, is it okay for a screwed up person like me to come back to church? And I am not a hugger. I am not a feeler. I, I study physics. I'm a nerd, right? But I just hugged him. He was just so broken. And this is this tax collector. I, he's standing at a distance. He's not even sure if he's allowed that. And then he goes on. He says, oh, sorry, Jesus says he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Beating one's breast was a sign of great mourning or grief. This tax collector was clearly distressed about his sinful state. Now, what's interesting is this. Not once did the tax collector promise to pay back the wrong that he had done. Not once did he promise to make up for his sin. Not once did he say, Jesus, from this moment forward, I'll never sin again. Why? Because he was so, so thoroughly convinced that he could not pay back, he could not make amends, and he could not promise to obey from this moment forward. Repentance is not making a commitment to live a good life. Repentance is agreeing with God, I am a sinner who needs a saviour. One commentator said, when he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, it could also be translated as, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. As if to say, of all the sinners on the face of the planet, I am the sinner who needs your grace, God. I am the one who is most broken, most desperate, most in need of forgiveness. Now, to which Jesus says, here we've got two people, committed, faithful, dedicated, above and beyond, disciplined, devoted, and we've got broken, desperate, aware of their need for God's grace. These are just completely different frameworks. And what Jesus is saying is there are two completely different approaches to God and religion. One is by works or the law or effort and commitment. And one is by grace and saying, I desperately need a saviour. And then Jesus goes on, he says this, I tell you that this man... The tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, the other, went home justified, that is, declared righteous in the eyes of God, before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is what we find. Contrary to popular belief, we don't become Christians by committing to live for Jesus, we become Christians by recognising our desperate need for Jesus. We don't become Christians by committing to live for Jesus. We become Christians by realising our brokenness and our desperate need for God's grace and Jesus' atonement on our behalf. These are fundamentally different approaches to the Christian life. And without alarming you, the stats say the churches are split right down the middle. I'm not saying you guys and you guys... But literally 50%, if you go, you can look surveys all over the world in every denomination. 
50% of people are approaching God via commitment and the law, whilst another 50% are realising it is only by God's grace. I can't even promise to obey. I'm so broken. I can't even lift a finger to contribute to my salvation. I am the sinner that needs your mercy, God. It is a fundamentally different approach to Christianity. Now, let me see if I can make sense of this. Um, during uh, the week, I was looking for some illustrations. I found a Tom Cruise video. I'm very aware of the fact that women in Australia don't like Tom Cruise. Is that correct? But men love him. So I'm going to play it anyway. Check out this video. Like the last Mission Impossible, you learned how to hold your breath underwater. Yes. Tell the people how long, this is incredible, how long could you hold your breath for underwater? Six and a half minutes. <gasps> Good, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it takes underwater because it took, from the time you get rid of the regulator, get rid of the bubbles, get on the side, and we wanted to do it in one shot. So there were very, very long shots. So these takes took, you know, they, I'd have to hold it consistently, you know, safely up to four minutes almost for every take. Almost to the point of why bother? <laughs> 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 I know, but we were committed. Everyone was there. The camera was set up. I, I'm just like, what am I going to say? It was too late to say no. And I trained for a long time to the point when I finished the sequence, there'd be times I'd be sitting there talking in meetings and I wouldn't breathe. I realized I am not breathing and I had to turn my autonomic system back on to breathing again. That's... seen that movie? No. I've not connected with a single person here today, have I? <laughs> anyway, okay, imagine you were Tom Cruise, right, and you had to do that scene. Here's the goat. Regardless of how committed he is, and he is committed, he does stupid things for movies, like almost dies sometimes, right? Um, regardless of how committed he is, would you agree there will eventually become a time where his commitment to hold his breath will be overridden by his desperate need for oxygen. Would you agree? His commitment will eventually fail. And you've got to get this. This is, I honestly think this is the key. My commitment is going to fail. If God saves me because of my commitment to follow, my commitment to live for him, my commitment to obey, I will never be saved because my commitment is not enough. It is not perfect. Is this making sense? It is not commitment. It was never commitment. The whole purpose of the law was to show us that we will never be committed enough to break us to humble us so that we would go running to Jesus and say, it is not my commitment. My commitment is nothing. It is my desperate 
need for you to save me. There is a huge difference between commitment and desperate need. Commitment will take you some part of the journey, but eventually it will fail and you have to get off the commitment journey and you have to say, I need a saviour. I desperately need Jesus. Now, the same could be said when you think about the church. There's a guy called John Ortberg and he said this. In Australia, there are two main methods of keeping cattle on the ranch. One is to build a fence around the perimeter. The other is to dig a well at the centre of the property. I think Jesus is more like a well than a fence. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying, listen, if you want to keep cattle in a property, you could build a fence and stop them from getting out. And that's fine. And some churches, unfortunately, operate like that. Here's the commitments you've got to make. Here's the, the, the covenant you've got to sign. Here's the agreement you've got to abide by. Here's the rules you've got to submit to. And we build wall after wall after wall after wall to keep people to behave within a certain kind of context so that nothing's too dangerous, nothing's too scary, but everyone conforms to what the rules say they should do. And then... The moment we stray, we look down upon them. We shake our head. Why are they doing that? They know not to do that. They've disobeyed the rules. But what John Orberg is saying is, listen, there's a whole other way. You just dig a well. You dig a well. And the cattle don't need a fence. Why do they not need a fence? Because they will keep coming back to the well because they know they desperately need water. There is a massive difference between building a fence and digging a well, driving people through commitment and discipline and rules, or reminding people, we have Jesus, and Jesus is enough, and Jesus loves us, and he cares for us, and he has all authority on heaven and earth, and he can't wait to hear our prayers. He can't wait to respond. He can't wait to get involved in our day. He loves just to hear from us. He's waiting as if he's waiting by the phone at every anticipating, just talk to me, call me. I just want to be with you all the time. Isn't that just such a better way to live? So if this is true, what does this mean for prayer? Well, in the same way we don't become Christians by community to live for Jesus, we become Christians by recognizing our desperate need for Jesus. We don't develop deeper prayer lives by committing to spend time with Jesus. Rather, we develop deeper prayer lives by recognising our desperate need for Jesus. That's it. You want to know why people pray? It's crazy. Are you ready? Because we need God. That's it. Oh, no, they've got the routine, they've got the disciplines, and they've got this going on, and they're really committed, and they're faithful. I'm like, no, that's fine. None of those things are wrong, but that is not going to get them there. Why do people pray? Because something in me, something in you is like, I am not enough. Jesus is enough. I will go to Jesus. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. He loves me and cares for me. I'm not a good person. I'm not perfect. I'm not spiritually committed enough. I am broken, I am a sinner. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus welcomes us with open arms. This is so good. Let me read you some quotes and then we're done. Tim Keller said this. These are long quotes, but they're so good. Prayer is a response that people feel 
when they sense insufficiency. People reach out even if they're not sure there's a God. How interesting is this? You can have the pastor who's been at seminary and Bible college for 20 years, who's so committed and so faithful, who's finding it hard to get to God to pray. But the single mum whose husband just walked out on her, who's not even sure if there's a God, is spending every moment she can find to cry out to this God, hoping he can do something for her. He goes on. When they don't feel self-sufficient, either their wisdom isn't sufficient for the moment or their strength or something else. Since almost everybody at some point point feels their insufficiency and since there's a very widespread sense, there's almost an absolute power behind the universe that when the insufficiency comes, it triggers prayer. It's almost an instinct. He goes on to say, if the doctor said to you, um, sorry, if the doctor said you have a fatal condition, And unless you take this medicine every night from 11 to 11.15 and swallow these pills, you will be dead by the morning. If that was the case, you would never miss. Why? Because you are in need. Not because you're committed. I'm making a commitment to take these pills. No, you know you cannot live without them. You would never miss. You would never say, I was too tired, or I didn't get to it, or I was watching a movie, or I didn't leave time. You would never do that. He goes on to say, and so when people ask, how am I going to get to prayer? How am I going to deal with the distractions? I say, maybe you don't believe you need prayer. And that is a theological, spiritual problem. And there is nothing I can do except tell you to get your heart and mind straight on that. There's another guy called Jerry Sitzer. I probably can't pronounce his name very correctly. He says this. There is a time and place in the Christian faith to master the techniques of prayer. Just to be clear, I am not saying, I don't think anyone is saying it is bad to have routines. Routines are good. Who has routines? Routines are good. It is not bad to be disciplined. It is not bad to be committed to things and faithful to things. But it is not the key. He goes on to say, There is a time and a place to master the techniques of prayer, to develop the discipline of prayer, and to become comfortable and confident when we pray. But what is most fundamental is the spirit of our prayers, the cry of our heart to get help from the only one who can meet our deepest need. The Bible reminds us that desperate people pray because they have no other choice. They pray because they are starving. They pray because they face persecution. They pray because an army is about to overrun their village. They pray because they want their family to stay together. It is pray or go under, pray or despair, pray or die. The New Testament is full of those kinds of prayers. Jarius, a man of reputation and influence, prayed not because he was committed, but because his daughter was sick and could not be cured and no amount of wealth or power could save her. A woman with an uncontrollable menstrual menstrual cycle prayed because every medical solution then existed in existence had failed her. The thief on the cross prayed because he knew he was about to die. No judicial pardon or stay of execution or miracle would allow him to put off having to face where he would spend eternity. None of these people knew how to pray with sophistication. None of them felt worthy or capable. They prayed out of desperation. We don't need to be in a good place to pray. Where we are is the right place, no matter how bad that place might be. Isn't this great news? Um, In his book, In the Grip of Grace, uh, an author by the name of Max Licardo 
tells a story about Billy Jack. Um, he met Billy Jack on a plane, and he, Billy, uh, Max Lacalle is very poetic and very kind. He says, I would describe Billy Jack as a, as a little boy in a big man's body. Billy Jack struggled intellectually. And he was put on a plane, and his mom or dad, whoever it was that put him on the plane, said to him, keep reminding everyone, don't forget about me. Don't, don't forget that I'm here. Don't forget about me. So, so Max Licardo meets him, and he says that Billy Jack needed help, and he knew it. Unashamed of his needs, he didn't let a flight attendant pass without the reminder, don't forget to look after me. When they brought the food, don't forget to look after me. When they brought more drinks, don't forget to look after me. When the attendant would pass, Billy Jack would urge, don't forget to look after me. I honestly can't think of one time Billy Jack didn't remind the crew of it, that he needed attention. And then he says this, the rest of us didn't. No one else on the plane kept saying, hey, don't forget about me, don't forget to look after me. We never asked for help. We were grown-ups, sophisticated, self-reliant, seasoned travellers. Most of us didn't even listen to the emergency landing instructions. Billy Jack asked me to explain them to him. Licardo went on to explain that Billy Jack was the safest person in the plane. If that plane was going down, who were they going to look after first? <laughs> Billy Jack. Everyone else is fine. Billy Jack, he knows he needs help. We're going to help Billy Jack. This is it. This is the Christian life. Jesus said, if you want to understand how to become a Christian, you've got to become like a little child. And I don't think that means that you unlearn everything that you've learned because, you know, obviously we should learn things. It means that little children are not embarrassed to declare their need. If I, if I was to, to, to fall over, I actually stacked it about three months ago. I had to go to hospital. But um, if I was to, as I was walking out today, if I was to stack it and I was to walk over, what would be the first thing I would do? I'd get up. I'd pretend I'm fine. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. So I, there, must have been, there must have been a rock or something I didn't see. It's all fine. I'd be embarrassed. I would, never, I would never want help. But a kid falls over. What do they do? They run to mummy. They run to daddy. They scream and they cry out for help. Why? Because they are aware of their desperate need. And that is what prayer is. Today we are going to celebrate communion. This is a religious ritual in the same way that baptism is. And it might seem weird to you. But maybe this is your opportunity to put your faith in Jesus. And what's going to happen in a second is we are going to take some bread and take some wine and we are going to drink it. And it is a way of us declaring to ourselves and declaring to the world of our desperate need for Jesus. So I'm going to pray in a second. And if you're saying today, I've just become aware that I've been trying to live like the Pharisee. I've been trying to jump through the hoops, but today I just know, I don't understand it all, I don't get it all, but I just know in this moment, I need Jesus. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to put your faith in him. So can we just have every single person with their heads bowed and their eyes closed? And if you're saying today, I'm a sinner, I need mercy, I need Jesus to pay for my sin, I need the Holy Spirit to come into my life and give me a new life, if that's you today, could you simply put your hand up right now as a way of saying to God, that's me. Just put your hand up right now, just really quickly and say, God, this is me. I am the one that you, you died for. I am the one that you need to give mercy to. Jesus, this is me. Just pray this in your heart. Jesus, right now I declare my desperate need. I declare that I need you. I declare that I need your mercy. 
I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross to pay for my sin. I believe that you rose from the dead. And I need you not just to pay for my sin, but to give me power over sin, power to overcome sin. So would you give me your spirit? Would you come and live inside my heart? Would you transform me from the inside out so that I can love, be filled with joy and peace, so I can live according to the values that you have set forth in the way you model Jesus? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as the, um, the communion comes around, we might just want to spend this time just quietly reflecting and then just take communion in your own time. Thanks heaps.